For years, marketers and technologists have envisioned a world where technology would be advanced enough and smart enough that they could reach consumers on a deeper and more emotional level. Turns out, through the power of automation, that world may now exist. I'm really talking about designing your digital channels so that they're cognitive. So you're realizing what a customer might be thinking. It's about being emotional. So you're reacting to what a customer might be feeling or thinking. Being compassionate. So you're responding to the customer situation with a genuine effort to help. So when we talk about implementing bots, it's not just about trying to impersonate a real life human being. You really shouldn't try to do that. But we're about creating these solutions around automation that's very much attuned to the customer's emotions, their motivations, their challenges that they're facing. Robots in the workplace are not new, but automation as a driver of empathy and not as just a way to accomplish repetitive tasks is a game-changing advancement. Virgil Wong, who you just heard from, is the chief digital officer for HGS Digital, a company focused on making empathy a driving force behind the customer experience. Virgil joins IT visionaries to discuss how artificial intelligence, machine learning, and intelligent automation are more than just buzzwords. In fact, they are actionable pieces of technology that can drive brand loyalty and create the optimal customer experience. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. Today we have Virgil Wong. He is the chief digital officer of HGS Digital and He's also the former co-founder and CEO of Medical Avatar, a digital health company creating time travel simulations, which we're going to dive into as well. Virgil, welcome to the show. Thank you, Albert. Great to be here. Let's start with HGS Digital because it has a unique call to action when I go to its website and I say, you guys transform businesses into better CX innovators, CX customer experience. It's a word that everyone likes to say. It's a little different when it comes to actually quantifying or describing your vision of CX. Tell me what HGS Digital does, what do you do for your clients, and your role in that. Yes, sure. I'm thrilled to be part of HGS as the chief digital officer. I'm responsible for driving these digital transformation efforts precisely to achieve those objectives and that nefalifluous uh, sense of what we mean by great customer experiences and how that we can use these tools like artificial intelligence, data analytics, intelligent automation, uh, the combination of bots and human brains to really make every interaction between the brand and the customer as optimal as possible. So the goal is to increase your customer's loyalty to your brand over your competitors and ultimately drive revenue. Yeah, let's go, let's dive right into a case because one of the things that we often get confronted with in like agency talk or maybe at a higher level conversation is people use a lot of those words, you know, AI, ML, bots, but what is it? What is it that we're actually doing is like some sharing the practical application of what your digital transformations have done, uh, practical application inside of a use case of a business will help our audience understand exactly, you know, your influence and also HGS's influence in changing the business outcome. Sure. So I think one of the distinguishing factors of well, why I like working at HGS is we're really focused on what we call empathic digital customer experiences. And we see that as being more important than ever, given current circumstances. So leveraging these bots and conversational intelligence beyond just the buzzwords to actually 
meet the needs and the motivations and the behaviors of your customers is more crucial than ever. And when I say empathic digital customer experiences, I'm really talking about designing your digital channels so that they're cognitive. So you're realizing what a customer might be thinking. It's about being emotional. So you're reacting to what a customer might be feeling or thinking. Being compassionate. So you're responding to the customer situation with a genuine effort to help. So when we talk about implementing bots, it's not just about trying to impersonate a real-life human being. You really shouldn't try to do that. But we're about creating these solutions around automation that's very much attuned to the customer's emotions, their motivations, their challenges that they're facing. The data analytics piece of it, I know that's talked about quite a bit. Yep. But just by looking at some of your top call drivers, you can really inform very clear dialogue flow designs. I've done this with a lot of our clients. So you can really anticipate these most common inquiries. So you're really identifying the best solution for a problem based on millions of interactions with other customers. So it's not big data making things less personalized. It's more personalized. This can make new customers feel like the system already knows what they want. And these sort of chatbots can really automate those repeatable, sometimes menial processes like placing orders or things of that sort. So your staff can really focus on other tasks. And hopefully they'll be less stressed when they do interact with customers. That's really the objective. Yeah, give me give me like a practical use case of how this is working in in real life. Wow, so many great examples. Let's see. Uh, Domino's Pizza has been pandemic proofing their digital focused business model for many years now. They launched a bot called Order with Dom back in 2014. I don't know if you've ever tried it. <laughs> Order with Dom. I, I have not, but you know, I feel like we're about to get some Order with Dom plugs going. So let's do it. Yes. Tell me what that experience looks like. I mean, I've ordered pizza before, but not Order with Dom. Yeah. So uh, I, I believe, uh, Albert, you're from New York as well. We live in New York. Yeah. Is that true? So I know we have a higher kind of a bar for what we consider a great pizza, but I, I grew up in Blacksburg. <laughs> so Domino's was uh, a mainstay of my childhood. So <laughs> yeah, I think everyone's ordered Domino's. Uh, so yeah, walk me through the, the process and kind of share with us what that looks like, like what that experience looks like and why digital transformation in what you guys do basically to improve that customer experience, how that impacts the final customer. Yeah. Some of the best practices that Domino's employed is, is something that we do for all our bots. Uh, what they did that I really liked is that the bot allows you to select these menu items. You can track orders by texting and you can re really reduce those common errors that may occur over a phone call. So that's you know, depending on people's accents or voices or volume or those connections that we all have to deal with now in the digital world. It eliminates a lot of those common errors. And the bot can also relay essential ordering information as needed. So like the gluten-free crust, for example, is prepared in a shared kitchen. So there's still a risk of gluten exposure. And if you have celiac disease, just you know, don't order it, right? So there's some very critical pieces that come into play there that may not come up in, in the phone order. And these customer experiences becoming more digital, hopefully can signal and maybe even inspire greater customer empathy from your entire team. Uh, I was reading about in 2016, Domino's staff in a Salem, Oregon franchise saved the life of a longtime customer when his regular online orders just stopped abruptly. Hmm. So after calling and visiting his home, they called emergency services, discovered the man had a stroke. That's insane. And fortunately, he was able to receive the help that he needed just in time. And, and I love how they've really folded in that focus on empathy and connection with their communities into their core brand identity. In response to COVID-19, Domino's franchisees have been donating 10 million pizzas, I believe, to local hospitals, school kids, grocery store workers and others in need across the US. So digital CX is not just about technology and processes and all the buzzwords. It's truly about the people you work with and the people you serve and care for with your products and services. So how does one go about, I guess, 
walk me through this. If you if you sit in on a company, like let's say you're in charge of lead, you're leading the digital transformation, how do you start? I guess like how how do you start? Do you 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 mentioned before you would gather logs if it was a chat, but I'm, I'm assuming it starts with a process of gathering tons of data. But then what I'm really curious about is how do you bridge the solution? Because does and then kind of share a little bit about. What exactly is it that you know uh, in regards to like technology solution sets that because you're ultimately in charge, I believe, of implementing a solution as well? Yes. Yeah, so the key piece of it here is that not it's not one size fits all. So right. really, there is a discovery process where we go in, we learn, we kind of understand where the pain points are. And the biggest value that we do as HGS, I believe, is that we can really bring those stakeholders to the table. And I've been on both ends of this. Uh, I led the web and interactive division at New York Presbyterian Hospital while Cornell Medical College for, for 15 years. And we pulled in a lot of vendors, including HGS, as our technology vendors and experts to help us pull together all the stakeholders. Getting that C-suite alignment is absolutely crucial from the get-go. So you, you can't have your roadmap. You can't have all those crucial planning pieces until those key leaders are in alignment in terms of goals, objectives across the board. And having an outside party come in to connect the dots, it's, it just makes it a little bit easier <laughs> to have those conversations rather than it becoming more of a, a political back and forth. Yeah. So that overall assessment, come to terms, having a, we do a lot of these workshops to really bring some of the best practices, some of the trends that we see in the, in the industry and say, look, here's what uh, maybe your competitors or folks within your industry are doing. Here's what folks are doing in other industries that are really creating better customer experiences. And this is what they're doing that's leading to increased revenue because your customers are more loyal to you or can charge more for your products and services. And here are the things that you want to avoid. Like these are pitfalls that we see companies do over and over and over again. And, and we hear you saying the same thing. And I don't want to get into specifics with individuals, but we can be that kind of early warning call like, hey, okay, you're, you're doing exactly what all these other folks have, have done and perhaps consider some of these alternatives. And it's really a process. It's an evolving process. So there's the, the crawl, walk, run phases. And people often want to run from the get-go. And more often than not, we see people stumbling when they try to boil the ocean or whatever the kind of common phrase for that is. By starting small, understanding what is that first step that you have to take in whatever silo that is really your pain point where you can have the biggest impact, that's where you start to strategize, design, and implement and iterate in order to get to that next stage. So how about for yourself? So, you know, you mentioned before that after you assess all the data, you can maybe tell some stories of other companies that are doing similar projects that have done well, maybe some pitfalls that use cases that didn't work out so well. Then it comes time to implementing a solution. What is it in your background or what is your background in regards to technology? How have you, you know, I'd love you to share that with the audience and then talk about when it comes to bridging the solution. How does, how does, HDS guide and how do you guide your customers into like into a solution to solve the problem that's been identified? Absolutely. That's a big part of it. People often think once you have the plan, then you're kind of good to go. <laughs> the, the devils are in the details. So how you go about with the implementation, uh, how do you, do you have the right folks involved who have the technology expertise? Do you have the processes in place? Do you have the people resources? So we're not folks that just sort of, um, simply kind of uh, come in and just sort of wave our magic wands. It really is a partnership with our clients to galvanize their resources, help guide them through those different steps of making sure that each of these efforts uh, have a not only clear ROI, but something that will lead you to tangible successes moving ahead. So that's a big part of it. The, the people, processes, and technology, getting them all to work together seamlessly. 
And that's that's one of the my favorite parts of working at HGS is that we're able to to pull those pieces together and help our clients really map out how to to implement that. For me, my background might be a bit unusual. Is <laughs> that I come much more from the art world, uh, but for me, art and technology have always been intertwined. I think uh, creative people inherently invent their own tools to bring their ideas to life. So whether it's prehistoric artists using red ochre to paint hunters and animals on cave walls, or uh, Johnny Versace creating orton as a gold or silver chainmail fabric that drapes and flows like silk, uh, artists are innovators. And today they're advancing the possibilities and potential of artificial intelligence, automation, data sciences. They're kind of bringing it to life, right? When you have this kind of cultural artistic expression, it's something that perhaps may be more accessible. And that's also something that can transcend that buzzwordiness of a lot of these terms that are having a big impact on not just businesses, but the culture at large. And all these technologies ultimately, I believe, should help us better understand the world, study problems, and envision better solutions. That's ultimately what HGS is. We're about providing these solutions to key business problems that are keeping businesses from being as successful as they, they can be. Uh, I went to art school because I love to draw, and <laughs> drawing was always a cognitive process for me, meaning that I felt better able to see, process, and understand the world and the people in it by drawing. And my background was, uh, I spent a year in school drawing and dissecting human cadavers at the University of Rome Medical School, purely with the intention of being able to paint living people (laughs) more naturalistically by knowing the body inside and out. And immediately after school, I did a filmmaking residency where I used compositing techniques to layer and animate my anatomical drawings, paintings, and models on top of each other, as well as over my own body. So technology was a way for me to connect with this interior invisible world inside all of us. And what's exciting about my work now is that technology isn't a means unto itself, but it could be a key tool in thinking about these mental models and these ways that we can help businesses be more successful by leveraging technology in a way that fits in with the way that human beings interact with them. So I'm trying to process what I just heard, right? You're saying that the actual ability, because of your art background, it sounds like you just, you believe you see problems in a different light than maybe a pure technologist would. Is that accurate? I think so. My, um, my brother works at Carnegie Mellon and is this incredible technology genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm very jealous of He was uh, back at Virginia Tech. He was online in like the 1980s, uh, connected with a, a modem to the university's uh, resources. Um, so I wasn't quite purely technology for its own sake. I really believe that that human connection to it. And oftentimes it sounds like a weird dichotomy that, oh, technology people tend to think of as a way of dehumanizing our experiences. But what I love about bots isn't that, oh, I'm chatting with a bot and it seems like a person. To me, that's very uninteresting. Is that bots can really take some of those tasks, like with physicians who are dealing with having to enter an EMR data all the time, mm-hmm. or they're expected to stay on top of every single article <laughs> in their particular area of specialty across all these journals and, and be an expert and, and fully familiar with all that, that data. Those are things that algorithms are really good at, at identifying. Uh, these repeatable tasks like data entry, bots should really be doing that. So uh, hopefully that will let the human beings focus on what human beings do good at, which is hopefully providing, in the case of healthcare, compassionate care to their patients and really focusing on those aspects of, of connecting with their patients and serving their needs better. So technology should be served in that purpose. And when we say automation, it's not about replacing people. It's about augmenting our ability to connect with our customers and and do our jobs more effectively. So I got to ask you a question, right? Because this analogy was given to me a while ago, and I agree with it. 
And they said that if you ask an architect what you want to, what should be built, they'll design you something beautiful. And if you ask a structural engineer what should be built, they'll, they'll give you a cube each time. <laughs> so there's a huge split between what the structural engineer wants to build and the architect. So in a way, you're deleting the forefront of these transformations. You're designing not only a functional tool, but probably something beautiful, I'm assuming, because you have an art background. Do you butt heads? Do you butt heads with the people that have to implement what you are helping design? Do your technologists sometimes say like, oh, why can't we just do it this way? And you have to explain, okay, the reason why we have to do it this way is because like you're kind of talking about that human, the empathy, the emotion of using digital products. Because like for someone like myself, sometimes I have a hard time understanding what that means when people like I'll give you an example. Someone mentioned to me once that like uh, on one of the social platforms, I'm not exactly sure which ones, I want to say it's Airbnb, they changed like the like button to like a heart. And when it was a heart icon, people were much more likely to give a heart than a like, which was a star, which I was like, I would have never thought of that because to me that, <laughs> that seems nonsensical. Talk to me about that like push and pull because I'm sure HGS has no different from any other company where when a product or solution is designed, it's ultimately maybe you know, it doesn't always align with the people who have to implement its vision. So give me an understanding of how you explain your position, uh, how you nurture these ideas so that they become built in the way you have portrayed it to a customer. Sure. So one of the key principles that uh, I really like is the idea of a mental model. So in human psychology, the mental model is that kind of picture of this sort of uh, implementation, this vision of what you are trying to accomplish. And more importantly, it's a framework for making decisions. So if your mental model is trying to solve a problem for a, a patient or a customer in some capacity, given a certain set of circumstances, then every decision that you make has to serve that need. So it's not about, oh, Virgil likes this and Bob likes that. It's about what is your customer like? And that sounds very vague, but if you have a clear set of personas, you have a clear sense of the journey, you have a clear sense of the problems that they face at the different stages of the journey and what they're thinking and feeling and behaving, then that becomes a very easy way to kind of point to something that's a little bit more objective rather than it being sort of the, the personal preference of the implementer, or this is easier because the technology was designed this way and it was already built in this way. So it's easier just to hit a button and, and kind of uh, let it go in this way, or that the code is already completed in a certain fashion. It's that if that meets that need, if it meets that decision framework in a positive way, then that's what you go with. But if it doesn't, then we have to start making adjustments to it. So it provides a bit of that focus. You know, we, we've all uh, been in a situation, I, I think, where uh, there are too many cooks in the kitchen or roles and responsibilities aren't clear or other sort of disruptive elements and it causes a product or a service to not be as good as it could be. But at least if you're on that same page on what that objective is and who you're doing it for, you can remove yourself from the equation and really keep going to that model as a way of making sure that you stay aligned and you accomplish the goal that you want. It's, it's very easy to get sidetracked. <laughs> I could imagine. So, so tell me, you know, one of the things that we always like talking with people that lead products or anyone in product side, I, I would call you in product side, is I'm always curious what you think other implementation, like what are your positive opinions, positive reviews, things that you admire? What are some solutions that you've seen implemented besides the Domino's one that you, you admire and explain for our audience why? Because I think that's one of the big challenges of this new era we're moving into where every, you know, every company is a software company. Every company's trying to build a digital experience that their customers love. It's very tough to quantify though, because sometimes they can't explain why they like something. So I thought we did a good job with Domino's. I'd love to hear 
some of the other ideas you've had or some of the other things you've seen that you that have been implemented. And you're like, wow, this is primo. And this is the reason why. Well, one thing that I'm really proud of is uh, one of the tools that I developed uh, with uh, Katie uh, McCurry, who's an incredible researcher, uh, designer. She had put together a application for tracking patient symptoms. So the, the key problem that we're trying to target was this difficulty of communication, uh, whether yeah. it's e-visits or even back in the day, uh, in-person physician visits, which were more common, saying like, hey, I've, I've had this sort of health issue that's been going on, it's like headache, stomach ache, it's gotten worse on this day, better on this day. And more often than not, you know, it's like that, uh, the dancing frog cartoon. I might be showing my age from uh, the, where <laughs> the frog dances when you're by yourself, but the minute you're in front of the, the doctor, the, the frog stops dancing. So yeah, I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. So thank you. So the doctor's like, oh, okay, well, I don't see any problem, but I, I sort of <laughs> believe you. And, and it's, it's just a very frustrating experience. So what we loved about this particular symptom tracker was that it was a visual way to embody that. So we took the avatar model. So as a representation of the patient himself or herself. And you can start creating these images, these shapes of what your pain might look like. So we've all maybe been in that situation where a physician asks you, oh, uh, something hurts on a scale of one to 10, how much does it hurt? And you might say, uh, one to 10, what? <laughs> what, is that? what does that even mean? Yeah. So the idea of communicating something that is so ephemeral, something that you feel so directly in your own body that somebody can't feel in their body, how do you communicate that? That's a huge challenge. So what we're trying to do with this design, this technology approach is to create this visual embodiment of, of their different pain. And we, we worked with a, a group of these pediatric patients that collect sort of their visual diagrams of like, oh, here's what like a, a prickly pain feels like. Here's what a dull pain might look like. And so they came up with a bunch of shapes. You can add that to your avatar, change the size and track it over time. So it's on a timeline. And when you're talking with your physician, and this was so exciting to, to see this in action, was that instead of the patient kind of giving a monologue and then the doctor sort of nodding and then responding, it became more of a dialogue back and forth where the physician would say, oh, wait, hey, tell me more about what was happening last Thursday. And wait, did this? And the visuals, the computer wasn't a barrier, which it often is today where the doctor's either looking at the computer screen and not looking at the patient. It became a facilitator for the communication. So to me, that was such a great embodiment of these better customer experiences is digital facilitating something that was harder to do in person. And with the, the huge and rapid adoption of telehealth and telemedicine these days, I think people are more willing to embrace these e-visits, but they're also seeing some of the barriers that are inherent to talking on the phone with your doctor or looking at your doctor on the webcam versus being there in person. But my hope is tools like the symptom tracker could be a way to enhance those benefits, make those into benefits, turn the limitations into something that could really be worthwhile. Uh, there's an interface that I've been developing that also shows relevant information and using bots to aggregate data from the patient's history and have that displayed on the screen for the physician. So the doctor's still looking at you on the webcam, but then there's information that instead of having to switch screens or look at something else, that anything that might be necessary to make that encounter, those 15 minutes or however long your visit is, more effective and that you can make a more informed visit and diagnosis or treatment or whatever it is that you're doing that visit, then the technology makes that possible. So this is fascinating. I, I, I want to dive into the, the picture one. Like I'll go back to the picture one that you used, like you said, use icons or iconography or pictures for a, a person to explain their pain. What pictures did you, did you use? So the pictures are generally shapes. So, uh, so it might be like for, uh, we use like a lightning bolt for something that was like a very sharp pain that was very sudden. 
that was something that um, uh, actually a number of our uh, epileptic patients used that as uh, an image of what the seizure felt like. Wow. Uh, there's like a, a bunch of dots representing the sort of prickly pain that several patients were feeling like in, in their back, depending on uh, certain types of diagnoses that they were dealing with. And it was really interesting to see the, the sort of visual representation of uh, what was going on in their bodies. Uh, it's something to be able to track over time. These are all the things that technology, especially VR, is very adept at doing. Uh, that's something that we're not really good at looking at from um, a human perspective, right? Like I can barely remember what I had for breakfast, uh, let alone yep. what happened weeks ago. <laughs> so to really be able to leverage, think about how you can really improve upon uh, the way that you communicate and share information and track information is something that I see a, a tremendous amount of potential. The visual piece isn't just about artistry or making things pretty or whatnot, which is uh, something that I think a lot of people sort of naturally <laughs> assume. Yeah. Uh, the visual language is something that does have this universality. So there's some really interesting studies that look at how uh, a visual shape may have inherent meaning beyond just what we associate it from a language perspective. So something that's sort of like prickly or something that has uh, like a rounder shape tends to have certain qualities associated to it that transcend language. Were the outcomes, did the doctors and, and patients report better outcomes after the implementation of this iconography? So we had several instances where uh, misdiagnoses were catched in advance. So there are certain points where really? uh, patients just were having a hard time kind of communicating the breadth of what was going on. Uh, we've had, uh, we had um, moms in Harlem that um, felt like they weren't being listened to by their doctors. And uh, you may know there's a very high mortality rate for moms and kids uh, up in that, that part of our, our city. And uh, to be able to have this tool set where many moms felt like they weren't being believed. <laughs> like, look, I'm experiencing these symptoms and the physician's like, oh, I haven't really heard of that before. Sorry, is this really happening? Like, no, I've documented this. Like, this is on a timeline. Wow. There are colors and shapes indicating what's going on. And even as you start looking at that timeline, uh, we had an epileptic patient who was going through and seeing like, okay, I was having these seizures and, and looked at the, the month. Of, uh, of seizures. It's like, oh, well, every time I had a seizure, I was having a really stressful day at work. And so he decided like, wow, I really need to manage my anxiety and stress better. And he started meditation, transcendental meditation, started doing yoga, and it had a huge impact in reducing the frequency of his seizures. So it's, it's not just communication, but hopefully bringing the sort of awareness that we may not be able to see until we actually see it. And, and that's really the power of visualization. No, I I can see this in play very, very well because I remember, so my father was sick for a really long time. He ultimately got diagnosed with something very severe, but it wasn't until my mom stepped in and intervened and she said, why are you, you know, why do the, why does the doctor keep just prescribing aspirin? And she went with him to the doctor and found out and discovered that he was reporting, you know, the doctor will ask you, like you said, on a scale of one to 10, describe your pain, uh, three. Well, the doctor says, says that's not that bad. But in reality, my mom then says, what are you talking about? You know, you're not even able to sleep a full night's sleep because you wake up because of pain. I would rate it a 10, doctor. And so that in-between play that you're talking about, well, where it's, it's really weird to think about, but like we have, we've completely relied on medical diagnoses based on anecdotal or self-described anecdotal data, very little quantitative data, right? Now you're saying that if iconography is getting people to quantitatively measure themselves more often... I can see how that leads to more predictability, better outcomes, maybe more, like you said, uh, catching things ahead of time, which is awesome. Curious, how do you see wearables playing a part in the future of healthcare outcomes? Because now there's more quantifiable data at, you know, 
It's on my wrist. It's always transmitting to the cloud. Do you see, a pl- how does that interplay with what you're talking about in regards to the customer experience of in, in just like, like medical diagnoses? Sure. The quantify itself is a, a very interesting movement uh, in terms of people tracking this data and trying to use it in ways to really improve their health. So I think probably the most common use cases, obviously, is like number of steps and trying to increase your cardiovascular activity. The area that I find really interesting is using some of these tools to capture additional measurements and to engage patients by not just sort of inundating people with information, which these tools do have the risk of having. And obviously, there are reliability and validity issues in terms of measurements of, of things other than the number of steps that you take. Even that with movements, um, there's, there's some points of subjectivity. But as this technology continues to evolve, we're seeing quite a bit of really important traction around folks who are, say, diabetic and are tracking their glucose levels and are looking for easier ways to be able to look at that information and make better decisions regarding their stress management, their diet, their nutrition, uh, because of whatever's going on in a real-time basis. So how do you really transform these points of data not only into knowledge, but into insights and hopefully wiser choices that you can make. So the whole continuum of health, that the way that, that, that we look at it is really about identifying the, the short, middle, long-term impact of those day-to-day micro decisions that we make. So the wearables can have a big impact if they can help inform you and help you make those better decisions day-to-day. One of the tools we developed at Medical Avatar was this uh, visualization called the, the healthy selfie. Okay. And so we do a, a scan of your body, kind of see, see yourself. And it was not just a model for connecting this type of wearable data or also your EMR data or EHR data, uh, but it was also a model for you to not just gauge your health transformation by how much you weigh or by your glucose levels or A1C levels or whatever that, that might be, but a visual picture of yourself that you can use as a record that became powerful for a lot of people. So whether uh, it's somebody who's a fitness enthusiast looking to get get healthier or trying to lose weight or whatnot, um, we had this one participant who was saying, yeah, you know, I I wasn't losing any Mm -hmm. pounds, I'm I'm, uh, I'm overweight. But when I looked at my healthy self, I could see changes in my body. So I was motivated. I I felt that stronger sense of self-efficacy that I, I, I believe I can do this because I'm seeing those changes. And then when you use that avatar to go through these exercises or certain movements, even if it's PT or whatnot, by seeing yourself do it, there's more of a belief that you yourself can do it, right? So instead of seeing this super fit trainer doing these exercises, like, okay, sure, you know, she can do it, he can do it. But when you see your own avatar do it, there's something that kind of triggers like, hey, you know, if I can do it digitally, I can do it in real life. No problem, right? There's, there's something that happens in terms of our perception of efficacy. So I love that story. I love that description of what you're talking about, because this is exactly what I was talking about earlier, where it's difficult for sometimes people use the words, but then they can't have an example or they don't have an example of making it to come to life. One of the things we learned about, I went to grad school uh, in 2004, long time ago, uh, (laughs) at Emory, we talked about how self-efficacy is actually the greatest measure or indicator of whether or not someone, a healthy outcome would occur. And we talked about it all the time, like self-efficacy, your ability to do it yourself. But no one actually knew how to do that. You mean no one knew? I remember being with professors and then like, well, tell me what it is that we need to do to improve self-efficacy. It's like, well, we don't know. <laughs> and so hearing you talk about, you know, using avatars, using virtual reality or AR to show or demonstrate that is a great example of how technology actually proves like this concept of improving self-efficacy, which leads to a higher health outcome. Curiously, 
you've written or you, you've been quoted on technologies beyond health too, beyond customer service. You wrote this uh, article or you're quoting this article about TikTok acquisitions. Do you also focus on the marketing side of technology platforms or social platforms? I'm curious where your studies actually, I guess, where do you study? It seems like you study a broad array of topics, but I'd love to hear you know, all the things that you observe, read, try to understand to better build digital products. Sure. I do a lot in healthcare, but I am interested in these other industries in terms of any sort of human technology interaction. So to me, that's really the central focus. And when you look at this sort of uh, technology like TikTok, which you know, we think of as a very goofy platform <laughs> that people are using, uh, I think a lot of folks were wondering like, well, why is Walmart so interested in TikTok? But it's actually very much in alignment with what we see as emerging social commerce and social centric trends in retail and a lot of other B2C industries and C2C industries as well. Uh, the implication here is that businesses really need to position their social media strategy as part of this overall customer experience that we're talking about. So social media isn't just about the ads or campaigns or public relations. Uh, we see now customers are expecting brands on social media to fulfill very specific needs at every stage of the customer journey. So it's, it's not social media anymore for companies. We really have to think about a social contact center providing social care to our customers. In terms of specific examples, I'm trying to think like Chipotle, Levi's, HP, there are a bunch of retailers who jumped on the TikTok bandwagon. <laughs> they're really yep, yep. doing mostly brand building, I think, at this point. Uh, they're not really providing any substantive social care yet. But we think this really needs to happen quickly. And, and we are seeing a lot of early cases of huge risks to your brand when you purely focus on just you know putting your name out there. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a skincare company. I'm not going to name them. Uh, they earned a million dollars, apparently, in six months from one viral TikTok video. <laughs> so it's like the dream come true for yeah. all of us uh, you know, who've been involved in startups and such. But one user had a really bad reaction, a really adverse skin reaction. And the brand didn't really respond adequately. It was a sort of focusing on promo stuff and not really dealing with the problem. And last I checked, the negative story is still at the top of the Google news results for this particular product. Mm. So on social and in every channel, I really advocate for companies to not only focus on protecting their brands, so mitigating these kinds of problems and amplifying the, the success stories, but they have to constantly plan, implement, and iterate some really truly empathetic digital customer experiences. Yeah, social is always a dangerous place, right? Because it's going to either amp it's going to amplify. It's either going to amplify your positive experience or like you just suggested, the negative. So definitely don't, I always recommend clients not to get involved unless they know <laughs> where they have a high, high confidence interval that they're going to get positive outcomes. Or it may be a positive outcome is no outcome, but certainly not a negative. No one wants the negative outcome. Tell me about, uh, you know, so you mentioned before you're studying different platforms, solutions. How about like in your personal life, personal products that you use? What are some personal products you use that you think are like game changing and, and explain why? Uh, you're putting me on the spot here, Albert. Uh, let, me, <laughs> let me think about that. Um, are you thinking like physical products or software products? It can be either or because, you know, you, you kind of go through the way you describe the way art meets technology, the way it meets experience to make things easier in your life, to improve outcomes. I didn't know if there were any particular products you thought were doing an exceptional job. I'll, I'll give you an example. I got one of those smart, excuse me, I didn't get one. My brother got one, a smart fridge. He told me how like it was going to make his life better, but I, I didn't, I didn't think so. And then one day it like broke and I saw the maintenance bill on it. It was like, that cannot possibly make your life better. That had to make it worse. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so, so I think about things like that. And when I think about like personal products, I think of, you know, I think about like services like, you know, I've already talked about it on other shows, but like there's a product called Wattify. Do you know what Wattify is? I don't think I know Wattify. So Wattify somehow made inroads with the CrossFit community. And I wouldn't say it's a great software product, but it's good enough. Wattify has created the ability to track uh, all your workouts and also let you know that you got a personal record and then it's, you know, uses a star to signal that a personal records occurred. And then also people in the community can engage with it as well. And during the pandemic, I found Wattify to be, I found myself being pulled into Wattify more because you used to go to the gym. Now you don't go to the gym. Now the only way to get feedback or positive, you know, kudos is, is through Wattify. And so I found myself using that more and I could see how like that would become even stickier for gyms that use it because it's creating a different community experience. So that was something that I thought I noticed and observed about my personal behavior. But I didn't know if you had any stories like that of things that you've noticed in personal products or services where you're like, oh, well, they're doing a really good job. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, looking at the Waterfly site now. <laughs> Thanks for the <laughs> recommendation. Uh, the premier gym management platform. Yeah, I mean, what we found really interesting is that a lot of these companies that really prioritize this digital, empathic digital customer experience, design, implementation, iteration are faring much better. And obviously there are variations between different industries. Um, but when you take that very strong customer-centric approach, uh, that's something that pays huge dividends above and beyond what we typically measure. So uh, from what you can see at Butterfly, uh, it seems like they're sort of on the right track in terms of addressing a very key problem and then doing it in a way that's been adaptable given to this new normal that we're living in, which obviously gems have been severely impacted um, due to the pandemic. We see that across the board, um, folks who are able to really not just pivot, but have thought from the start exactly what we've been talking about, uh, understanding who their customers are, what journeys they're experiencing, and how to best serve them at every stage. And it's, it's different. I, I got to, Virgil, just talking to you, I got to, I got to, sorry to interrupt. I think we, I, you, we, you've just unlocked the next multi-billion dollar idea. You ready? Sure. Stripe for communities. So you know how Stripe made it easy to integrate payments into any application you were developing? Mm -hmm. Someone needs to do that for communities so that all these different software makers don't have to make and invest all their community technology. Great. Uh, I'm happy to be an equity partner with you, Albert, on this. <laughs> and uh, my, uh, my lawyers will be in touch and uh, we can figure out something very equitable for all parties. I'm telling you right there, that that's it right there. Like the developing community tools so that it can be plugged into every single software application or uh, software. Well, typically even like physical products now all have services, right? Uh, Peloton led the way, but you're going to see it, I think, with refrigerators, scales, uh, anything that you use is going to have probably like a community aspect. I can see a future where like even glitter, like you get you buy glitter or crayons from Crayola and be like, hey, do you want to be part of the Crayola community where it's like constantly coloring sheets and things like that where you can download and draw and color? That's going to happen, right? You mentioned before this sense of community. There it is. Whoever makes the stripe of communities that's it. That's the that's the company. Talk to me and Virgil. We want to cut. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on my patent right now for this. And this, this broadcast will be the copyright uh, notification. That's it. First to market. We're first to market. If we, we launch this, this is a dated recording. If no one's talking about this before us, it's ours. <laughs> we have it on record. One of the best uses of Stripe that I've seen, I worked with a hospital that uh, we worked with their philanthropy department and created this giant touchscreen. So this is common to a lot of the, the cases that, um, that Stripe has, has advertised. And it's a video promoting the prenatal 
unit and some of the intensive care uh, services that are offered by the hospital. And so when you swipe your credit card, you're cutting the umbilical cord of this digital video of this baby and kind of bringing them out to the world. And you're seeing that kind of care. And through this digital visualization, you're seeing how your donation from that swipe, from cutting that umbilical cord is affecting that child's life in a positive way. Oh, that's awesome. And it's that sort of visualization, that sort of future time travel piece, which is something I'm very interested in. And one of the key reasons I'm drawn to digital is that it enables us to imagine the possible futures ahead of us rather than being uh, predestined <laughs> to something that we don't plan for or anticipate. And it really brought to life and created this level of engagement, this sort of emotional connection, uh, precisely to the sense of community that you're describing but even more so to that act of giving and what that action can really result in. So the more we can create those visualizations, the more we can paint a picture of that better future and help customers understand what the potential of these products and services that uh, companies are offering them, the bigger your advantage is going to be in the marketplace. So that, that's something that I'm personally very excited about. Oh, I can see, I can see that hundred percent. Like if I was in the hospital, you know, and I see that and I donate my money and I, you know, it tells me who's being the beneficiary, how much, how much it's going to help them. I mean, that goes a long way versus like, here's your receipt. It's tax deductible. You know, it's not quite as, like you said, it's not quite nearly as emotional. And to actually kind of answer your question, because I'm still, because <laughs> I'm trying to give you a more interesting answer than like, oh, I love my Mac or, you know, my iPhone is <laughs> I use That's every fine. day. Um, I, I teach a virtual reality class and I'm a big fan of metaverse. I, I think it's still, Still in need of additional maturation, but it's a great tool. Any of these kind of low code tools. Okay. I'm a fan of just in terms of making the technology, the ability to leverage these platforms more accessible to more people. So I think Metaverse does an incredible job of making AR, augmented reality, very easily controlled and to even start teaching some of the principles of programming. Because I, I see a lot of even the graduate students I work with very intimidated by like, oh my God, I've got to learn C++ or Java or, or any of these programming languages. By sort of removing that and understanding the principles of declarative actions, of really understanding this logical flow of how one screen moves to another to another, you're understanding the basic foundational ideas of programming, right? Object-oriented programming. And uh, it's something that I really kind of appreciated the way they've, they've tackled that uh, as a pure web interface. I also teach Unity, which I love just as a platform to create these virtual worlds. So, so much of what I do is about trying to envision that better future. And the reason that I love virtual reality is not just because I can use a nice pun where I have a website called virgilreality.com. <laughs> it's, it's a way for me to kind of take my overactive imagination and see how things sort of play out in this virtual space. So whether it's scenario mapping, whether it's that mental model that I mentioned of where a company, an organization, a product, a service, an individual can, can go to and what that might look like. The, a tool like Unity, which is it's a pretty dense application, but it's, it's extremely powerful in terms of bringing that idea to life. So for me, any sort of technology that can really empower individuals to do something that they otherwise would have severe challenges in accomplishing, to me, that's a huge win. And we often can take a very patronizing view of our customers, like, oh, like, oh they don't get this, or customers always have these problems. And you get that sort of common frustration. I think if we respect our customers, understand their needs in this very kind of equitable sort of direct way that we can really figure out better ways to empower them and use our products and services in a way that really allows them to be creative and do things that they never imagined. And, and that's, that to me really is the, the, the point that we want to all reach in some capacity. The only reason why I'm bearish, and I'm not really that bearish on virtual reality, 
is why are the glasses still so big? It seems <laughs> they're ridiculous. When, are, when <laughs> Virgil, tell me when the glasses are going to get smaller. Apple's working on it, right? Um, yeah, they're they're. <laughs> yeah, uh, you've probably seen some of the social media videos of like people falling over, running into furniture, or falling over things. Yeah. From- I, I went to a VR experience once. I thought it was awesome. Don't get me wrong. I've seen some of the applications, uh, you know, for example, teaching people, you mentioned before you dissect cadavers, but imagine having access to unlimited cadavers virtually, right? Being yes. able to practice your craft over and over again, learning. I don't doubt that at all. I think for, I just think about on the consumer side, I don't, I have a hard time believing these giant clunky things will become standardized, but I do know that I do agree. People are trying to make them smaller and more. Nor, like normal glasses all the time. There are definitely challenges from a hardware perspective. Yeah. But keep in mind, cameras back in the day were like the size of like horse carts, you know? So yep. uh, now they fit in our, our pockets. So uh, yeah, now they're the size of a thumbnail or maybe smaller than my thumbnail. <laughs> <laughs> so scale is definitely a limitation. Uh, but I think the potential of VR, I mean, we're seeing probably more traction in the AR world. So by layering in some of these virtual elements into the world around us and everything from yeah. furniture, interior design, that sort of application, or Sephora with the sort of makeup uh, augmented reality piece uh, that, that's been pretty effective. Those are kind of quick wins that don't require anything beyond your phone. So we're definitely seeing a, a lot of work and a lot of uh, effective applications on that front. Absolutely. Well, Virgil, it is time. It is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Virgil, this is where we ask some fun, simple questions to let our audience get to know you a little bit better. You ready? Uh, if I said no, um, that, that I assume that's not an option. No, no. It's not, yeah, you got to go. You got, we got to do it, okay? Albert, I'm ready to go. I'm revved up. You're ready. All right. So you're a teacher of art and film. Which one do you actually prefer more? Uh, uh, same thing, right? It's uh, art, it's film, film is art. Now you got to pick one. <laughs> I'll say art thing because I consider uh, that to encompass uh, media like film. Okay. What is your most proud then piece of art that you've created? My most proud piece of art. I think it's, it's that uh, the patient visualization piece of it. So I, I ended up sketching a lot of those patients as they were using our symptom tracking app, mostly as a way where their avatars look too much like them. And obviously private patient privacy is a huge issue. So I ended up doing these sketches of them and then compiling that medical data and those shapes and visualizations into a, a series of art pieces. So, so that's on my website and probably the, the, the work that I most enjoy because of the interactions with all those patients over six months. Awesome. Is sketching your favorite uh, form, medium of art? It's my favorite daily activity. It's something that helps me process information and think and document new ideas. If you could compare your sketch style to someone else, who would it be? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> um, it sounds pretentious, but I, I, I really love Giacometti's drawings because they're, they look very scribbly to people, but he's really about investigating form and digging in. And it's not about making a pretty drawing, but really trying to see how shapes relate to one, one another, looking at the distance between objects, uh, looking at how the form is sort of carved out of these, these lines. A drawing is a cognitive process, as I mentioned. Uh, there's uh, Dr. Andrea Kantrowitz, who uh, I studied with at, at Columbia. Uh, she does a lot of work about how actually drawing can help us learn and remember things more effectively. There's something about this embodied cognitive process, our, our body moving things, just like if you're trying to teach somebody math and they're using their fingers to count, you're using your body and you're hopefully able to track and process information more effectively because you're using your body. Like I'm, I'm waving my hands right now as I'm talking. So, uh, so drawing is an extension of that. And um, I 
for me, that's that's been a very effective way for me to to navigate all the stuff going through my head. All right, you make me you're making me feel smart now because I actually do that myself. Although I wouldn't call what I do drawings; it's basically just a block, a bunch of blocks and arrows. But it does help me think and conceptualize what it is I'm talking about. Not only are you drawing, Albert, you are drawing with a cognitive process instilled and embodied into your activities. So <laughs> even more impressive than you possibly could have imagined. I'm going to need you to type that out for me so I can tell someone that's what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. So you've been working from, I mean, we've all been working from home for a little bit now. Uh, What's been your favorite aspect of work from home? I definitely like the uh, the flexibility. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm always kind of immersed in the digital world as it is. Um, but I really like the ability to to set my own hours for the most part um, and to be able to find those kind of times of productivity, the times to kind of interact with individuals and also to figure out the best ways to leverage the virtual platforms to communicate and connect with the individuals that I need to connect with more effectively. So whether that's uh, work-wise or even socially, I think there's a lot of potential with these tools that we haven't even unlocked yet in terms of how we connect one another. So to me, this is a great opportunity, despite circumstances, to figure out how we can better use technologies ultimately to connect and strengthen our communities. All right. One last one. What is the best advice someone has ever given you? Mm, uh, What other people think of you is none of your business. Really? Tell me how you put that in play. Well, so much of uh, what one can kind of preoccupy themselves with is sort of the perception of, of others. Um, so yes, obviously we want customers to be happy. We want people we work with to be happy with the work that you're doing. Um, but ultimately you have to really define what is your points of integrity for the decisions that you're making and what you're doing. And the influences that you draw from other people should be influences in terms of answering or putting context around some of these kind of key questions that you have. And that there are certain types of influences that can have a very negative impact on your ability to, to do what hopefully is, is good in the world. So um, for me, that, that's, that's been uh, effective through uh, a lot of the work that I've done where you get very positive responses sometimes and sometimes you get very negative responses. So by kind of not fixating on what people think of you in sort of a negative way as a way of kind of diminishing your effort and energy to do better, uh, by sort of removing yourself from that, hopefully you can take that criticism, learn from it, and continue to improve. Wise words. Virgil, thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thank you for sharing your perspective on how digital and art intersect. And I hope you had a good time. And thank you for sharing all of your wisdom, knowledge, and expertise. Thanks so much. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. <laughs>